Ladies and gentlemen, ghouls and gals, welcome to the One Dark Fright Podcast. My name is Tim Waverla, and on this episode, we're bringing all the sleepover essentials, a bag of Maui Wowie, low-cut negligee, and some super phallic power tools, because we are casting our gaze upon 1982's Slumber Party Massacre. And as always, helping me get through the scary night are two of the best co-hosts one could ask for. First up is Ainsley Pompey. How are you, Ainsley? Doing well. How are you? I'm well. Are you ready for some Slumber Party fun? I am. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> And then last but not least is Rebecca Kittner. How are you, Rebecca? Oh, splendid. Excited for today. Did you bring your favorite pillow and your comfiest PJs? Oh, definitely. Ready for a pillow fight. Nice. I was going to wear like that long t-shirt jersey thing and just that, (laughs) but I opted to be a little more conservative. So I'm going to switch this up and start uh, this with a question for both of you. And I'll start with you, Rebecca. What are your sleepover memories? Are they fond or are they nightmares? A mixture of the two, you know, sleepovers could be a lot of fun, but they usually turned into a lot of drama because usually you get a group of girls together and it can be fun. But then as the night wears on, (laughs) you get a lot of drama and a lot of tiredness and a lot of cattiness comes out. So, but I definitely have some fond memories too of some sleepovers that went right, but there's definitely a lot of sleepovers that went wrong. (laughs) Fair enough. What about you, Ainsley? Same, pretty much. Uh, I feel like my friends and I were weird because we did a lot of like weird, like dressing up and we made a 911 home video one year. (laughs) Um, I'd love to see where that is. So I feel like we did a lot of weird stuff, but there were definitely times where I I think a couple people got a pillow to the face to shut up because they were being too loud for too long. It depends how many girls were there. Right. It was like, if you had only, if you were sleeping over with one to two other girls, it's fine. You get more than that. It starts to get too much. It does. I hear that. Yeah. I mean, I have mostly fond memories. Uh, I think dude sleepovers are probably a little different. <laughs> I would imagine, you know, we were just ordering pizza and watching movies and my friends were sneaking cigarettes and then we'd wrestle around like idiots, you know, kind of that sort of thing. No, I saw my first porn magazine at a friend's house when I was probably... <laughs> 13 years old, which is, you know, a rite of passage for a preteen boy. Okay. All right. Now that we've taken a tour down memory lane, I say we dive in. What do you guys say? Let's do it. All right. So again, we are covering 1982's Slumber Party Massacre. And this movie opens like all great horror movies do on a palm tree. (laughs) So we know right where we're at. We're in California. I'm assuming it's Southern California. And we get this Phantom of the Opera kind of tune by way of Casio keyboard. And since we're going to be inundated with this for the entirety of the movie, I might as well kind of ask it here. Does the lo-fi sound work for you guys? What do you say, Ainsley? No, I thought the exact same thing. It sounded like Phantom of the Opera, not a horror film. Um, And I guess Phantom of the Opera can be horrifying, but uh, I don't think it really (laughs) fit the tone of the movie. So no, I... It was a little cheesy and it went on too often and I it was not necessary for me. Rebecca. I enjoy it, but I don't know that it wor- works in the sense of it being horrific. Um, but I do enjoy the music. I think it's cheesy and funny and 
works for the movie if you think of it that way. But in terms of being a horror movie, it's not really scary music. But I do, I, I like the simplicity of it and it gets stuck in your head if you hear it enough. But yeah, I can totally see the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, that's kind of the first thing that that came to mind when I heard it. And I know the first time watching this movie, I was definitely thinking like, what is this music? Like it's because it's just so sounds so cheap. Like they just added it in just to put it out on video. Like, oh, we need some sound. So let's someone smack on the keyboard and that'll be it. I've grown to like it a little bit more as it goes on. It it plays into this low budget charm this movie has, but it's definitely not a scary music. You know, this um, there's going to be several references to Halloween in this movie going forward. This was not a solid attempt if they were trying to replicate Halloween's, you know, use of music. So, yeah, it doesn't work for me in that. And it just it's like each arrangement is a different variation of this opening theme. You just keep hearing it over and over and over again. And like you said, Rebecca, it just gets stuck in your head. So, yeah, it's not the worst music, but it definitely doesn't make it scary by any stretch. All right. And then um, one of the first things we see is the newspaper thrown on the sidewalk that reads Killer of Five, Russ Thorne Escapes. And do you guys remember when horror movies used to always feature an escape mental patient or an escaped convict? Mm-hmm. It kind of makes you wonder, like, was was the security not great in these places in the 80s and 70s? <laughs> I know there was one point in time, and I can't remember exactly when, where they had to, like, release patients from mental facilities because they couldn't like take care of them anymore. And they like just put them out on the street because there was no money to house them and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So I'm like, is this, does this kind of go along with that where they're just like, yeah, people are just escaping right and left, you know, what's going on here. So yep. they're always, they're always getting out. Things are a little loose in the late seventies, early eighties. Yes. Yeah. And this is the first part of that kind of Halloween thing. Cause again, it's an escaped, they don't say mental patient or convict but it's somebody escaped from a facility so they're really kind of starting off with this halloween type scenario and then we'll move on from there and we're gonna meet trish who is uh, lying in her bed and is awakened by a scream from her floor alarm clock which everybody has uh, that is tuned to kded radio (laughs) so starting off with the the references here a little tongue-in-cheek I have dubbed her room the Pink Palace because everything in there is pink. The carpets, the sheets, the bedspread, the curtains, her underwear. Uh, She changes the radio station and we get this relaxing flute melody accompanied by our first dose of casual nudity. In the window, open window, no curtains, just standing in a window, topless. We all did that, right? Yep, free to the world. Willy Nelly is standing in the window. I know I sure did it giving the neighbors a show. Yep. It's it's the world they live in. You just kind of take your clothes off whenever <laughs> and the world can see. She's tossing out all of her her toys, her stuffed animals, Barbie doll, a slinky toy horse. Is, we are trying to, I suppose, intone that she is getting rid of all her childhood goodies. And then she heads downstairs because her parents are going out of town. Mom and dad are in a hurry. And mom says that the chips are under the sink and the soda's in the fridge. Why are the chips under the sink? I don't know, but that's gross. It is, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's plumbing down there. There's leaky pipes. You don't put the chips under the sink. Household cleaners. No, that's where your chemicals go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's just negligence on the part of her parents. So mom tells Trish that the next door neighbor, Mr. Contant, will be looking in on them while they are away. 
And she's not too pleased that he's going to be there because she's got the girls coming over later. Uh, on her way out the door, she does place that bag of toys in the trash with the Barbie doll sticking out, which is promptly scooped up by a heavy breathing arm. <laughs> two for two on ripping off Halloween because now we have an escape killer stalking a high school girl on her way to school. And then we are going to cut to school and meet Jeff and Neil. Jeff is the first of two walking boners in this movie. <laughs> and Neil is basically a pile of soggy towels. He is absolutely useless to this movie. I mean, they both are useless to this movie, but no, no one more so than Neil, I would say. Jeff spots the telephone repair woman, which is a nice change in the first of the kind of gender role reversal that we're going to have in this movie. Uh, she is dressed head to toe in blue. And Jeff quickly lays some moves on her, including the bit, would you ever consider dating a younger man? You know what they say about younger men. Try it. You'll like it. <laughs> Does anybody say that? I've never heard it. It sounds like the slogan that Lay's Potato Chips was trying to come up with before they settled on Bet You Can't Eat Just One. <laughs> the chips under the sink. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get a few more of these kind of weird sayings that are not a thing at all. But that's just the first of them. The, the boys walk away after she kind of shuts Jeff down. But she's distracted just enough. And when she opens her work van, Russ Thorne's hand reaches out, grabs her by the neck and yanks her right into the van, which makes for a pretty cool and spontaneous first kill. And I suppose this is how we're going to explain how he gets his trusty drill and a multitude of other things that he uses in this movie from this van. But my first question, why is an escaped convict, I'll call him a convict, hanging out at a high school in the middle of the day? when we've already heard on the radio that the police are out looking for him. I don't know. I mean, is, is it the closest to where he escaped from? He's like, let me hit up the school. I'm um, over here. It's convenient. I don't know. Yeah. No clue. Yep. Hiding in plain sight, I guess. Yeah. Good work. But it's, it is another Halloween reference. And that movie though, no one believes Loomis. So nobody's looking for Michael. This movie we've already heard on the radio that they are looking for him. So, you know, his exploits are being broadcast all over the radio and on the newspaper. And it's worth mentioning that we will not see one single police officer this entire movie. So we only hear on the radio and on, in the newspaper that they're out looking for him. There's no physical evidence that they're out looking for this guy whatsoever. And then we get our first pretty cool sight gag as the boys are walking away. And then you can see over their shoulders the poor telephone woman pounding on the van window trying to get their attention. But they, like... Every teenage boy has moved on after being rejected, moving on to the next thing. And I wanted to note that it's she does not get a name. This poor woman doesn't even have a name tag on this. Huh. You know, she gets a couple of lines, but doesn't get a name. I suppose she's just telephone woman. But <laughs> yep. So she is dead. And then we shift over to basketball practice where we're going to meet most of the rest of the cast, starting with coach Jana, who's dressed in all red. And she is the first character that will be dressed in one single color. And there are many of them throughout this movie. Then we meet Diane, who is the bitch and a ball hog. <laughs> Valerie, who is the new girl. And by all accounts and by every character in this movie, she is super pretty. <laughs> she has Diane covered up like a blanket on that basketball court. Then we've got Jackie, who heaves up 
a brick that clangs off the backboard, causing Coach Jenna to tell her, Larry Bird, you ain't. <laughs> I love that, Dig. That's wonderful. Just talking shit in gym class. <laughs> Jeff and Neil are there too, but they've basically been reduced to cheerleaders, which is again, kind of the, the, the role reversal where they're just kind of cheering them on. I mean, they're, they're ogling them as well, but uh, they're definitely just cheerleaders. And they have to mention how pretty Valerie is. And this is going to be just constantly mentioning how pretty this girl is. And I guess I'll, I'll say it now since we're hearing all this. Her looks, I feel like, are the reason that she was hired for this movie. Because her performance it leaves something to be desired. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. She's She's pretty. Though, you know, I mean... And she does, it's a pretty wooden performance, but I find it hard to believe they couldn't find somebody who is pretty, who couldn't act a little better, but maybe they didn't want to pay that much. But practice does end. And unfortunately we have to cut to the girl's shower room. The scene (laughs) opens up with the line, you know, I think your tits are getting bigger. (laughs) And an echo of mine comes from multiple girls there. And I feel like a dude wrote that line, right? Yeah. I, I mean, think. I, I would say yes. I have never said that to any of my friends, no. especially not in high school. That was not something I ever said to any of my girlfriends. And Rebecca, did you ever shower after gym or after sports? I never, not no, once did. No, we had to, because when we first watched this, I had commented on this because I'm going, what girl's locker room is like this where you're just, there's no privacy and you're all just showering naked together. And I was like, did I have to shower when I was in school? And there was one time in middle school where they, where they gave you enough time to do it, but never did I do it, you know, cause who wants to shower in front of a bunch of other girls when you're like in middle and high school, nobody wants to do that. So yeah, no, that was not a thing. I agree. I just want to touch briefly on kind of the creative team behind this movie. It was written by a feminist, uh, Rita Mae Brown, who had intended for the movie to be kind of a riff on slasher tropes. And it was directed and produced by Amy Holden Jones, who had rewritten a lot of the script under the New World Pictures umbrella of the B-movie mainstay, Roger Corman, who had, shall we say, certain requirements for films of his, namely the scene we're about to see where... After the the line about their, her boobs are getting bigger, we get the towels start to fall off and we're thrust right into this teenage boy's fantasy. <laughs> and has there ever been less alluring nudity in a horror film? Maybe in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's up there too. <laughs> but no, I mean, the camera does a good job of making it not titillating at all. Just like methodical just going down back up over to the next girl down back up so you know even though you're looking at these girls at least from a woman's perspective you know i'm looking at them but i'm like i'm not seeing anything that sexualizes them like it's more like here they are naked yeah i was almost clinical in a way yeah yeah that's exactly the word i wrote down too like it, it's like an assembly line instruction video. Like, you know, the, the, it, she's got a head and then move down. Here's her back and then here's her butt and then back up to her head and move over. Here's yep. the next one. It's like providing evidence of these women being naked in the shower. And, and again, that was the director basically just 
being like, fine, you want nudity, I'll shoot this nudity, but I will not make it look like you want it to look. Yeah. The girls here talk about liking to watch basketball and football because they like to look at the players in their cute little shorts and that one of the football players is a doll. And But this is a, I feel like it's a contradiction because then later on, we're going to get this whole bit, this running bit of them trying to figure out the box score of the Dodgers game from the previous night. And I feel like the two don't fit for you to be like, oh, I like to watch them because I like their little shorts. And then later on, they're like, oh, who scored all the runs last night? Like that, that's not, those aren't, you know, incongruous. Like I just, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. And then we're going to meet the last member of the girls club, who's Kim, who is unleashing a pretty steady stream of shit at Jackie for throwing up that brick <laughs> in practice. And that's funny. And that was a question I had for you guys too. Do girls shit talk this much? It depends. I don't know. So when I was in cheerleading, you know, we would rag on each other a bit if you mess something up, you know, I mean, but in a playful way, but we would kind of do this to each other. Cause I mean, it's competitive. And so you're messing with, but probably not as much as they're doing in this movie, because I would say the same thing didn't happen in some of the other sports that I played. So I don't know. I would say probably not as much as they're doing. I agree. I don't remember. Cause I would have felt bad if somebody made me feel bad, even if it was just <laughs> joking. So I wouldn't have done it to somebody. I don't remember us really ever. I played volleyball. I really don't remember us ever doing something like that. I remember like joking, but not being like, she's like really going yeah. at her. So I don't remember really doing that. Yeah. She's like, remind me to never throw the ball to you. And if I do throw the ball to you, please don't shoot. Yeah. In front of everybody too. And in the shower, pretty, pretty rough stuff. And when they're sharing soap, I don't know if you guys noticed that. Oh, yes. Yeah. They're like <laughs> passing it around. I'm like, is this prison? What is going on right now? Yep. That's, that's how this is presented. It's yep. prison for these girls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, high school pretty much is, but yeah. Yeah. So at that point it cuts over to Valerie, who is exchanging lusty glances with Trish from across the room. Did you guys catch that? Yes. Like the first few times I watched it, I was just like, oh, she's just looking at them and watching them and hearing them talk and maybe wanting to be part of their little clique. But this time I was like, no, she's she the two of them are they got their eyes locked. Mm hmm. Yep. I definitely sense some little some womanly love there. Yes, there's a connection. Yep. (laughs) That eye contact had been made. (laughs) Made and held for a while, too. (laughs) So uh, Trish walks over to walks over to Valerie and tells her what nice basketball she plays. But then she saunters over to Diane, our resident bitch, who says that she wants to invite Valerie to their party, which Diane does not like. Um, They do mention how. Pretty she is again. They start, the girls start asking Diane what she has against Valerie, and she makes up multiple bullshit reasons to dislike <laughs> Valerie. Like, this is just a laundry list of excuses that's basically saying, I'm insecure and mm-hmm. she's much prettier than me and better at basketball than me and everything else. The list of these things are she drinks too much milk. Someone says she's pretty. In which she says she works at it. See how perfect her eyeliner is. <laughs> I mean, is that even a thing that, again, people rip on unless you're feeling totally insecure? What's the milk thing, though? I, to me, I was like, I 
I took that to mean that she was tall. Yeah. Like she drinks too much milk. Like she's tall because she is tall compared to Diane. So I was like, well, she's tall. She's pretty. So that's what they're kind of getting at is she's tall and pretty and good at basketball. And you don't like her because she's tall and pretty and good at basketball. (laughs) So, and the eyeliner thing. Yeah. I, I don't know if anybody has said, oh, her eyeliner is too perfect. I don't think that's ever been a thing, but if anything, you're like, damn, her eyeliner is perfect. How did she do that? Yes, exactly. That's, that's more, it's like an envious, like how, how can I do that? She finishes up by saying, I don't like people I have to get to know. <laughs> Same. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely relatable, but, <laughs> and then she says it's her problem. She was transferred here. Not mine. And I think Diane is, I mean, spoilers, she's, yeah, she's going to die. But I think she's better off. I don't think she would have handled college very well. I mean. That's if she was going to college. I mean. Very true. Not everybody goes that route. Well, she's got a hunk of a man waiting for her (laughs) after this. So maybe she was was going to ride that train. I did not like his face. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if any of us did. Oh, boy. We're getting there. Oh, gosh. One of the girls responds by saying, Diane, you're a snob. And our second ridiculous thing, she says, hey, only the best people are, you know. And that's not a thing. Uh-uh. Nobody's ever said that. I don't okay. know if snobs say that. But no, in my experience with snobs, that's not what they say. No. Yeah. In, her, in her defense, she owns it. She's like, yeah, I'm a snob, but only the best people are. So she's very much in ego self-defense mode in this part. Trish winds up asking Valerie anyways if she wants to come to the party. Val responds by acting like she dropped her ice cream cone on the ground. And yeah, this was the first part where I was like, yeah, she is not good because she puts on some fake blubbering and pushes that door open. They were like, all right, we'll give her one take and that's it. So then we see the whole crew, including the boys, leaving for the day. And Russ Russ Thorne is sitting right in the front seat of that telephone van. And so this is the first time we're going to see his face. So I'll ask it now, being that we've got an unmasked killer. Do we find that scary? I mean, I thought he looked anemic almost like he needed to eat something. (laughs) I was like, you look a little peaked, sir. You need to get some some vitamins going. But I guess it's more realistic to me, more realistic horror for them not to have a mask. But He looked a little crazed, I guess, but I was just more concerned about his health than anything. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of made the same note that, you know, it's more realistic to have somebody unmasked and that be your killer. But in terms of an average slasher, having a masked killer is scarier. So in terms of does it work for being scary? I don't know. But is it more realistic? Yes. But also, you know, he does make some crazy faces where I'm like, I've seen some people make those faces. And yeah, that is creepy. So, yeah, he does. okay. Yeah, he's got the the crazy eyes look down. Yep. And yeah, he does look a bit anemic (laughs) and and like he needs a good night of sleep. Like he he looks like he's been up for a week and he's yeah, he's a chronic insomniac. Yeah, he might be. You know, that'll drive you crazy. I could see it. He he does have some unique mannerisms. I know I've read that this this actor Michael Villella based his his movements on that of a peacock, which 
if you look at it knowing that he said that, you kind of see it a little bit. And I think that helps because he's got some very unique mannerisms. Like he's a performer. He's basically saying that he took this kind of seriously and had an idea in his head for how this guy was supposed to move and how he was going to act. So I can see it a little bit. Like he, you know, he sticks out. He doesn't stick out like our guy in part two, but he definitely <laughs> uh, has some some uniqueness to him, despite not having a mask and looking a little a little sweaty and a little little eyes kind of bulging out of his head the entirety mm-hmm. of the movie. So then we're going to meet a character that we will not get to know in the slightest, which is Linda, except that she forgets a book and has an important test on Monday. So she has to go back in and get it. The gang walks by that dumpster and sees the poor nameless phone woman lying in the sun with a wound in her forehead that looks nothing like a drill hole. It's completely filled in. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like someone put out a cigar on her forehead <laughs> as opposed to an actual drill. Uh, Linda is another one who's kind of dressed in one color. She's got one shade of pink on top, another shade of pink on the bottom. And Russ is dressed in a Canadian tuxedo. So we got <laughs> the blue and the blue with the red shirt. Linda gets her book, tries to get out, finds the doors are all locked. And then before long, Russ comes up behind, puts the drill into her arm, and then she runs away. And we get a little kind of an un- uninteresting chase a bit. We get to see kind of how he is. He's he's going to be a running killer. He's not going to be the walking slow kind of thing. Not very interesting because we, we just met this girl. Like, are we supposed to care what's going on here? No. She winds up hiding in the shower room and bleeding out. Eventually, uh, Russ sees that the blood is seeping under the door. And then he drills through the door. And then Linda screams bloody murder and the camera cuts away. And I feel like her death was not imminent. Yeah, I always think like she could have run away because I mean, she's not that's like a side door or something because where he leaves when she's in there is on the other side. So it's like, while he's drilling through the door, go run out the other door. And he hasn't made it through the door yet. I watched a a review recently there. I didn't realize that there's kind of like a whole little franchise of the slumber party massacre. Like I didn't know that. What is it? The sorority massacre is like part of it or something too. I had no Mm. idea, but I recently, I recently watched some guys that have a YouTube channel and they did a review on the true like sequel of this movie. And I, it, the name is escaping me at the moment, but Linda, the, the woman who plays Linda and the character is in that movie. So I'm like, <laughs> she must not have died in this one. If she oh. is in another movie somewhere along the line saying, yeah, it is. So I'm like, either that, or we've just got a lot of like, you know, no continuity going on with yeah. the movies, but which considering the source is highly possible. Exactly. Yeah. We need the, the slumber party massacre universe. Who knew? <laughs> yes. I had no I idea. I know. I was shocked. <laughs> so she screams and then he comes running back out, sprinting to the van with that bloody drill in his hand, like all escape convicts would do in the middle of the daytime, <laughs> run across a high school parking lot with a bloody drill. No, again, there's an ongoing manhunt for this guy, but no one's really looking. Uh, then we're going to cut back to the the neighborhood here, and Trish is arriving home on the back of a motorcycle, who we assume is her boyfriend because she gives him a kiss. But she says, thanks, Mark. And why is Mark given a name? We will never see him again. And yet the phone woman who speaks words does not get a name. I'm irrationally upset about this, but <laughs> I want to know why Mark has a name and she doesn't. <laughs> 
maybe because Mark was a, a fellow student. I don't know. Could be it. I don't know. I was bothered by it. I was just like, fuck Mark. Doesn't do anything. <laughs> Get out of here, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so the camera pans over and we see Valerie at home too, who's kind of lingering there and watching the proceedings as Trish goes into her house. So we can see that they live next door to each other. And then it cuts over to Diane walking home alone and being followed by a another heavy breather, which is Rebecca's favorite thing. Mm, I love it. Maniac is her, is her favorite movie. I hate she can't it. stand it. Can't stand it. Can't stand the heavy breathing. <laughs> I don't like hearing people breathing. I don't. Either. Yeah. So I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, labored breathing. Here we go again. Yeah. Could people just not breathe, please? <laughs> yeah. Can people, if you're gonna breathe, can you do it quietly, please? <laughs> like, oh. it's like he has. A, it's like a cat with allergies. You just like kind of, <laughs> you kind of hear it. It's weird. I don't know if it's scary. It's just kind of <laughs> odd. It's an odd yeah. thing. Whoever this person is, we're going to find out who it is in a minute. We get some very shaky point of view camera here. Like whoever's following her is walking on a mixture of small rocks and marbles because it, it is the least smooth camera movement I've ever seen. Diane crouches down and a hand reaches out to grab her, which she immediately drops like third period French. <laughs> and this is our first false scare, which I will be keeping track of because there are many in this movie. And this turns out to be our second walking boner, John Minor. <laughs> Good old John. Reactions at first to seeing that these two are together. My first thought was, <laughs> why? But then I also <laughs> thought, I said to my husband, I said, is he just really tall and she really short or, or what's going on? But I have always dated really, really tall guys, like six, five and up. And I'm only five one. So I thought that's probably how stupid I looked at some point, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, his face, I could, I, I didn't need to see it ever again. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, uh, yep. I, I would tend to agree. I was like, this is a very unlikely pairing. Mm-hmm. We, we always talk about the reacher and the settler. And yeah. I'm like, the, there's definitely one of those in this, though she seems enamored with him, which I just totally don't get. But yeah, I, I feel the same. I don't like calling people unattractive, but I was like, oh, this is the guy they picked. You know, I mean, to be in a movie, to be a love interest of some like pretty attractive girl, like this is the love interest that you pick. The girls are going to question it later and we get a, a semi weird conversation about it at the slumber party. But so we're not the only ones questioning it. Thankfully, They're, the movie isn't trying to push this guy off as some attractive dude that she's dating. He's a look. I like that how big he is, but she just puts him right on the ground. <laughs> it's wonderful. They have a little back and forth about whether or not he's allowed to come over to the party, which is going to be an ongoing thing, too. But then we cut over to Coach Jana who's driving home. And we hear on the radio again that about Russ Thorne being on the loose, but it doesn't seem to interest anybody. She shuts the radio right off. Nobody seems to care about this. She gets to her front door and before she can unlock it, a power drill bursts through the door right at eye level. And that's our second false scare. And it's handy woman, Pam putting in her peephole. (laughs) Little Pam putting in the holes. <laughs> Pam is putting in peoples. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I laughed pretty hard when I was just putting in your peepholes. Like <laughs> that just sounds <laughs> I don't even know. It's just yeah, 
It's not Did a- you notice how quickly she put it into from the time the drill went through and the time she left? Like that was already in. And it was like not even in correctly. It was just like hanging out of the door. Yeah, <laughs> She's exactly. like, oh, it's in, it's fine. It cuts back and forth. It's like the drill had the people like attached to it when she <laughs> pulled it back through. It's just like, is that how that works? <laughs> Coach Jana asks if the telephone repairman's been there and Pam says she saw the van across the street. And I only mention that because the, those little details that kind of keep the killer present, you know, the telephone van is is in the neighborhood, which is again, another Halloween kind of reference. The killer here has the, like the work vehicle that's easily you know noticeable. So this is about the third time they've already ripped off something out of Halloween. We cut over to Trisha's house. She's on the phone with Diane talking about John saying he can come over but can't come inside because her mom will be bummed. And then she hears, she thinks someone is at the door and goes to check, but not to worry, the door is just wide open. Nothing to be alarmed about, just a wide open door. I'll just close it and go play the piano. That's why it's like, who goes and goes and plays the piano after that? She seems a little freaked out. And then she's like, I'll go play the piano to soothe myself. Like, huh? I, uh, I mean, I don't play the piano, but I can't see me going and, getting spooked by hearing noises and a wide open door and then going and playing the piano to calm myself. The uh, camera pans over and we see this shadowy figure descending the stairs. That's when Trish bolts for the front door, but surprise, it's Mr. Content. And we have our third false scare already. (laughs) And he has decided to pop over in between tapings of Magnum P.I., because that shirt (laughs) is loud. He says he saw the door open, but didn't see Trish. So he came in to investigate and that he's going to hang there until the friends get back or until the friends come over. And then we cut over to coach Jana. She's preparing a cheese tortilla and then knocks over her juice on the floor, shattering the glass. But then she hears a sound and the weapon that she goes through the house with is a tiny little piece of glass that she picked up <laughs> off the floor. That she would most likely slice her own hand with while she was trying to cut someone else. I guess the thing that I thought was so unusual about that was how many times have you dropped something and not been like, oh, damn, or or, or something? She was just like, d- nothing came out of her. <laughs> it was just drop and then there, that's it. No big deal. It's common in her house. She was like, oh, shit, I did it again. <laughs> nothing strange about it. I was looking at the, on the counter, all the, there's like zero product placement in this movie. Everything is turned around backwards. There, all the labels were turned. I just kind of chuckled at that. So she goes around looking through the house with this little tiny piece of glass. And then here's the sound, a scratching sound coming from the closet. Turns out to be Muffin, her cat, who was locked in the closet. And that is our fourth false scare already. So the gym teacher living alone with her cat, of course. Who looks as young as the high school kids. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, she looks really young. Kudos, Coach Jana. (laughs) I don't, whatever you're doing, keep doing it, girl, because you're doing it right. (laughs) All right, so then we cut to it's nighttime and Jeff and Neil are walking their bikes down the street in the dark. Originally, I was writing it as Jeff and Jeff's friend because Neil's name is not mentioned for like an hour into this movie. And I know that these guys are so unathletic that they're not even riding their bikes. (laughs) They're walking their bikes down the street. And again, you know, the women in this movie are positioned as so much more capable than these guys. But later on, the guys are going to try to play the heroes when... They have, are proving time and time again that they do not belong in that role whatsoever. Jeff says he wants to scare the girls. Neil notes they're not invited, but Jeff says, just a baby scare. You know how girls love to scream. <laughs> now, just between this and his pitch about dating younger men, I, I, I think he doesn't have a good grasp on women. 
No, he's confused. <laughs> he, he is a confused young man. And then he says, what are they going to do? Get mad at us? And Neil smartly says, they could beat the shit out of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they could, Neil. Good, Neil. Absolutely. Neil gets a pat on the head. They keep walking, and then we get to see, they see them walk right past the telephone van, so we know that Russ is nearby. And then we go to Trish's house. Mr. Content's still there. The girls arrive. They come in with all the party essentials. Beer and weed, but not just any weed, the Maui Wowie. Mm-hmm. Pure seedless. And we're going to cut back to Valerie's house. And I want to note here that it's going to be a series of cutting to Trisha's house, cutting to Valerie's house, cutting to Trisha's mm-hmm. house, cutting to Valerie's house for the remainder of this movie. And it was very difficult to type these notes because that's all it is. But buckle up for that. <laughs> Valerie is in the kitchen making Kool-Aid with about three quarters of a pound of sugar. Is this how you make Kool-Aid? I don't know if I've ever made Kool-Aid out of the packet like that. Is this how you make Kool-Aid or is she trying to give her sister like pre-diabetes? <laughs> Pretty close to how you make Kool-Aid. There's a lot of sugar that goes in the Kool-Aid. Yeah, it's bad. It's, it's a lot. Because I remember we had like a huge scoop. We didn't have a lot of Kool-Aid in my house, but I remember yeah. when we would make it, we had like a really large scoop for sugar because we would use it when like my mom would bake. And we would use that huge scoop to put the sugar in for the Kool-Aid. So it was a lot of sugar. That's why we didn't have it a lot in my house. So we're going to meet our last main character, who's Valerie's younger sister, Courtney, who's cosplaying as a proto Hooters girl with a mullet. (laughs) I thought the same. Yep, same. (laughs) They say dress for the job you want. (laughs) Considering she is boy crazy, this definitely suits her. Was Hooters a thing back then? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I would say not. Because maybe this is where Hooters got their idea for their uniform from. They were like, you know, that Courtney, she was on to something. Could yeah. be. Polo shirts tucked into orange, <laughs> orange micro shorts. So look. That's, it's going to be, that's going to be, that's a brand. It's not even a look, <laughs> it's a brand. Pop a name on it. I just Googled it. It said they were founded in 1983. When did this movie come out? 82. Oh, so there you go. Oh, shit. <laughs> Boom. See, who owes it. who some royalties, I think. Exactly. <laughs> Damn. Told you. I was yeah. like, man, maybe they got that idea from this. Sure enough. <laughs> yep. Almost immediately, the phone rings and Gordon is on the phone for Courtney. So this look is working. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And then we cut back to Trish, Trish's, I should say. They're smoking weed and eating handfuls of potato chips, which rings true. <laughs> so Kim and Trish are wearing the same clothes from earlier, but Jackie is dressed in all yellow now. So another character dressed in one color. It's like the movie is fetishizing single colored outfits. <laughs> are these supposed to be her street clothes? Because I thought this was her sleeping clothes, but she will change. She changes. Oh, she changes. <laughs> oh, gosh. She yes. blossoms, you might say. Yes. So Diane isn't there yet, so they are talking shit about her, which I assume is probably the most realistic thing about this movie. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Asking, what do guys see in her? Well, she's beautiful. She's got a big mouth. And then another idiom that never took off It's not how big your mouth is. It's what's in it that counts. When they said that, I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) 
It like isn't even teeth? the worst one yet. <laughs> we're, we're building up to that. Then oh. they say, I don't know what she sees in John Minor. Maybe it's what we don't see. Hey, it's not how big it is. It's what's <laughs> in it that counts. None of us see what's going on with him. <laughs> yeah. What does she see in John? Too funny. So is this, this is authentic behavior, right? Yeah, I would say so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think they do a good job of making not like super likable characters, but they're not obnoxious. Like yeah. part of the strength of the movie, I would say it'd be that it, it is written by women. You know, I think that's why these girls kind of come across as ridiculous and silly as the movie is. I think they come across not as these unsympathetic characters. Like you don't want them to get killed. Like the guys can, you know, go out and get drilled all they want, but you kind of don't want to see them go because they're, again, they're not like super likable, but they're not so obnoxious as characters are in a lot of movies from this kind of time period. Mm -hmm. They hear a noise and find a cracked coffee pot on the stove and saying that they left the burner on. Trish goes to the sink, and then we get this pseudo POV shot from outside the window. Trish looks up, and it's startled by Diane. And we get our fifth false scare now. We're up to five. Back over to Valerie and Courtney. They're sitting around in the living room reading. And I'm going to ask here, why is Valerie positioned like a mom in this movie? Well, how old is Courtney? Did they ever really... Is she just a couple years younger? Yeah, they don't really say, right? I kind of assume that she's probably like 13, 14, maybe 15. Yeah, she just says like her baby sister or something like that. I don't think they say her age. Did they talk about their parents really at all? I don't remember them referencing. So I'm like, is it is it a two-parent household? Is it a single mom or is it, you know, and maybe that's why Valerie They only feels- mentioned the mom. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah, Courtney's terrified of mom. Yeah mom must be a disciplinarian because she is constantly worried about Valerie telling mom about something she's doing. I don't think she's, in my opinion, I wouldn't say she's dressed like a typical teenager from that time frame. And then here she's literally sitting in a rocking chair reading. <laughs> so I'm like, they they're just have her positioned as like this kind of older figure in this movie. She's an old soul, maybe. Oh, she is an old soul. Yeah. Uh, she goes outside to check on the overturned garbage can, which they think the dogs have gotten into. And Courtney runs upstairs to Valerie's room to grab the sexiest thing in the house. And that is a playgirl with Sylvester Stallone on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Articles mentioned on the cover of this magazine, photo spread lifeguards hot enough to make the sand sizzle. And baseball superstar Dan Ford takes it all off for Playgirl. Bow, chicka, bow, wow. Who wouldn't want to take that into their room and read it, right? Right. Do I need to look into Dan Ford? I don't know anything <laughs> about him. <laughs> I don't even, I've never heard of that name from then. Like I was one years old when this movie would have come out. So <laughs> yeah. it's a little early for me, but yeah, I, I have never heard of that name. And I, I was afraid to Google it because I'm <laughs> in this magazine. I'm not, mm-mm. Type in Dan Ford Playgirl, 1981 or 1982. See what comes up. I will do that later. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) You know, I I did note one thing hanging in Valerie's room. There there is a rainbow flag hanging over her bed. Yes. 
And I was wondering, again, this was written by a queer woman and wondering if that was put in there on purpose. I actually had to Google to see when the that became a symbol of the pride flag. And they said it started in 1978. Mm. So I do wonder if that was purposeful and they were trying to make a little hint about, you know, Valerie's sexuality there. Nice. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. So. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a cool little bit. Valerie's out back. She gets cr- spooked by this creaky swing and then runs off. And then we get this, the next horrible scene, Jeff and Neil sneaking around Trisha's house right as the girls are changing for some more casual nudity right in front of the window. And I was going to say, this doesn't happen, right? If you just showered with all your friends just hours ago, I guess it wouldn't make any difference to be getting changed in front of each other in this house, though, again, they're in front of an open window. Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, yes. I mean, it wouldn't make any difference to be changing. I never did this with my friends. My friends and I definitely never stripped in front of each other and got topless in front of each other. And I'm sure it's what guys would love to think that we do, but never did this with my friends. I remember maybe changing into pajamas when you still have your bra and underwear yeah. on, but but never just full on topless at that age. No. Yeah. Ag- yeah. Agreed. Like, you know, maybe, maybe if you had like your bra and underwear on, yeah, changing into that, but never like taking any of that off to put something else on. That's- right. To put a nightie on or yeah. negligee. <laughs> yeah. A negligee on. <laughs> Not doing that. <laughs> At my friend's house. <laughs> Jeff and Neil are very excited about this. And Jeff says, I don't think I've been k- giving Kim the attention she deserves. And I think Kim ne- might appreciate some space, bub. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I don't think she needs you humping her leg all around. So yeah, just stand back, bub. So two things. One, this scene goes on for way too long. This is a 76-minute movie, and this scene goes on for a minute and 38 seconds and progresses the plot nowhere at all. The second part is, what is Russ doing all this time? It's been 15 minutes of screen time since his last kill. I believe his total kill in this kill count in this is like 11. We've only seen like two so far, and we are this far into the movie, so he is going to have his work cut out for him as the movie goes on. The boys ask, what did we do to deserve this? I think we died and went to heaven. So we've got another self-referential moment. A lot of people talking about, you're going to die. I'm going to kill you. A lot of that stuff. So here's another one. We bounce back to Valerie and Courtney. Courtney is in her bed lusting over Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) Next to a street sign on the wall that reads, take it slow and enjoy it. And I don't think that's referring to the arduous journey of the human existence. (laughs) No. No. <laughs> That's all I can say. Is no, I don't think so. <laughs> he is DTF. <laughs> She's advanced for her age. <laughs> she is advanced. <laughs> she is not hiding it. No, she really isn't. Back over to Trish's. She's in the kitchen plating a gourmet spread of Twinkies and cheese puffs. <laughs> <laughs> then ordering a pizza. So the weed has most definitely kicked in. Diane goes outside to get wood for the fire. Trish tells her to go through the garage. We get a shot of Diane out by the wood pile. And we see this figure with a glistening meat cleaver. 
And as she's gathering the wood, she is startled by a terrifying garden snail, <laughs> which then becomes our sixth false scare as the meat cleaver annihilates this poor snail. This poor oh. snail. I know. I felt so bad. I know. I, I hate that. I was like, oh. for a slasher movie. Poor little thing. Who kills snails with a cleaver, though? I, and I was like, snail hunting. I'm like, is that a thing? Do people know. go snail hunting? I've never had a garden. And I've, my parents, they don't have a, like, I've never experienced snail hunting before. So I was curious if you guys knew if this was a thing or not. I think people usually put out, I've heard people uh, put out like salt and stuff or like garden slugs and things. And I'm mm. sure that it would go to, like dry them out. Yeah. But who's going around like hunting them down with a cleaver? Yeah. yeah. Totally yes. weird. Well, and yep. he says it's the only good way to get them. Like, I, I feel like he hasn't tried any other ways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the first thing he did was smack one with a meat cleaver, and he's like, well, shit, this must be the way to do it. <laughs> I mean, I can appreciate that they say they don't want to use pesticides on their vegetation, and that's why they're doing it. But I feel like there's ways of removing snails without pesticides or meat cleavers. And there's got to be something in between there. Maybe pick up a gardening book and figure out a way. Yeah. Uh, Diane goes back inside and then Mr. Content spies another snail on the driveway. But before he gets a chance to murder this one, he gets murdered by Mr. Russ Thorne, who seemingly breaks the drill bit off in his neck. Yeah. I was like, how does he fall the way he does with the drill sticking out of his neck with no drill behind him? Yeah, that was confused, too. This is the first kill in the last 16 minutes, and now we're going to get rolling. We move back to Trish's. Jeff and Neil are still peeping on the girls until they hear a noise, which we know now is Mr. Content getting a drill on his neck. Trish, Kim, Diane, and Jackie are sitting around doing all the things you do at a sleepover, I would say. Drinking, smoking, snacking, and reading the newspaper. Yes. The newspaper being number one. Yeah, that's what you do. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the weed again, kicking in. Start to <laughs> grab a newspaper and just start reading weird shit. They, uh, Diane wants them to read her horoscope, which uh, reads off, you, your power with the opposite sex will get you ahead. And being that what happens later, I would say that's a pretty funny little in-gag because mm-hmm. you will wind up getting ahead. Mm-hmm. Trish gets uh, a little chill and decides to close the window and spots somebody outside creeping. We know who it is, but she doesn't. Doesn't seem to bother her too much till she sees the meat cleaver stuck into the windowsill with that Barbie doll and it has blood all over it. And she seems a little upset by it, but nobody else really seems to be too upset by this. My husband commented on that and he's like, why didn't she say anything or why didn't she freak out about that? And I said, maybe that was, again, a comment on the fact that uh, when we as women are frightened or are worried about something that we're seen as acting crazy or over exaggerating or we're, you know, being way too much or whatever. So I thought, well, maybe that's just a comment on from a feminist point of view that they didn't want her to freak out. They just wanted her to just like play it kind of cool and just act like it kind of didn't happen. But still, you would think you would say to everyone else, come look at this weird Barbie doll on the window, right? Yeah. That I threw out earlier today and now yes. is stuck to my windowsill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they they chalk it up to, it must be those boys. So the boys are playing pranks, as they are want to do. Trish is worried about the garage door being closed, wondering if Diane had closed it on her way back from getting the firewood, which Diane has no idea. So they go outside to check 
And when they do, the light bulb is out. And I think this is actually kind of effective for this movie. And that goes back to its low budget because it's actually dark in that in that garage. Like it is dark. And I think with the, I mean, I did read that they, they were asking for more budget for more lights and that Roger Corman wouldn't give it to them. So they had to kind of make do with what they had and try to come up with kind of natural means for it. But in this instance, I think it really works because if there was somebody in that room, you really would not be able to see him. It's not like that movie darkness where like, as you're watching it, you can see everything in the room, but we're supposed to believe that the characters can't. Mm -hmm. So I think this is actually kind of effective. At the end of the scene, Russ does pop up as they're exiting. And then we bought back over to Valerie and Courtney. And then Valerie goes upstairs and catches Courtney ogling that playgirl and sucking on a lollipop. And on the other side of her now, there's a street sign that reads, don't stop or I'll scream. <laughs> I don't know if I got that one. <laughs> Is this the part, though, too, where um, Valerie pulls a banana peel up out of the bed? Thank yes. you. Yes. What was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> And Courtney's just like, cut it out. Yeah. Like, that's her response to it. There's like, oh, she's up to her old tricks with bananas again. <laughs> with the loan and the banana. <laughs> this movie is obsessed with sexual sexualizing this young girl in a very weird way. Yeah. It is something. I think their parents, if it's a single parent, they're very liberal. Because <laughs> if you saw those signs from your whatever teenage girl on the wall, you'd probably have to think, I might need to have a talk with her. Probably. <laughs> Just, you know, sit down next to mom here for a second. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, Valerie calls Courtney a pervert and holds up the banana peel, which has just a loaded image completely. <laughs> and then Valerie is reading some, some bits from that magazine. We see that super sexy picture of the dude's butt as he's looking in the fridge. <laughs> Courtney says, gross. And then she says, oh, faker, you were beating off boys in the fifth grade. Oof. So what does she mean by that? Because I thought, did she mean like literally or did she mean like beating them off with a stick because they thought she was so great? Yeah, I, I took that to mean like beating them off. Like <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I took that. I was like, wow, in the fifth grade. Fifth grade <laughs> handy jobs. No. Like, whoa. That's like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in the sister saying that I'm like, that's rough, but yeah. yeah. And then that's why when she's like, did you tell mom? And I'm like, wait, so did she really do that? Like, wait, hold up. We need to spend more time with Courtney. I need some background on this girl of like, what's cause she's yeah. So that's the way I took that it was beating them off. Not with a stick, but yeah. With hands. <laughs> Again, the first bunch of times watching this, I thought it was just like, oh, I had to beat him off with a stick. But then when I started noticing all the signs on the wall and really gave probably more than enough thought to this banana peel that she holds up, mm -hmm. I was like, maybe she means beating off boys in the fifth grade. Courtney doesn't or um, Valerie doesn't seem all that disturbed by it. Just kind of like, oh, that's what you were doing in the fifth grade. And that was it. But, you know. Rebecca, you saying, you know, we needed to spend more time with these two. I wrote down the question here of why are these characters in this movie? 
they're not being targeted and they really have no bearing on the plot. Mm. That's a really good question. Yeah, that's very true. I don't think I thought about it. I just thought they're just more characters. What's their point, really? Other than, <laughs> as we see later on, spoilers that, you know, Valerie like kind of saves the day. But what what is the purpose? We just get these scenes of them behaving as sisters. So I suppose we're su- supposed to care about them when it comes to the end and they become involved with the action. But leading up to that, it really is just scene after scene of nothing being contributed to the action of the movie. And I say again, it's a 76 minute movie and we spend almost as much time, if not as much time with these two sisters as we do with the slumber party girls. So I had, it was like, why are we spending this time talking about this stuff unless they're really trying to bring out this idea of this much sexuality going on? You know, it might go back to the whole parody thing with them trying to lampoon and be like, all these movies are about is blood and sex. And that's what we're getting in this movie. But in this really weird fashion with these two characters that don't do anything except bring this sexual element to it. I did read that somebody had kind of written a review about that. And they had said that with that little scene with the Courtney and Valerie with the banana and everything was sort of a way to show that, you know, uh, Valerie doesn't really react to her sister looking at the playboy and the conversation they're having. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, no big deal. You know, like it's very like normal. Whereas, you know, in another horror movie, women would be seen as being like, oh, I I can't believe they're talking that way. Or, you know, that was something men do. So I did read that they wanted to include that to kind of, as again, be a, in a, a way, a feminist thing as look, women are sexual beings as well. And what have you. But again, I feel like they could have done that with the girls at the slumber party. They didn't need mm-hmm. to do that with those two characters. I can see that not hiding them being sexual. They're allowed to be, you know, outwardly sexual, which is fine, but we're doing it with the only character who's supposedly under 18, right. because I think they say that Valerie's 18. The only character that's not 18 years old is the one who is the most sexual in this movie. Mm-hmm. Which is surprising coming from a feminist writer and I, and another woman. Like, why did they use her specifically for that? That, that is a little, well, not a lot little. It's a lot weird. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep. It really is. So we go back over to Trisha's. Diane is sneaking away to talk to John. The other girls are secretly listening. And uh, we only hear Diane's side of that conversation, but she refers to John as boo-boo. And I'll be referring to him as boo-boo for the rest of this talk. Talks about John coming over and she says, I love it too. Do you think I'm getting better? (laughs) What does she mean? (laughs) What does she mean? (laughs) I I assume it's it's either a blowjob thing or just sex. Yeah. I mean, we could take it either way. Yeah. Those were the two options that popped up in my head. I mean, my thought initially was sex because she says, I enjoy it too. And my guess would be, a what 18 year old girl probably isn't enjoying a blowjob as much as she's enjoying sex, but who knows? I don't know. Who's to say? Who's to say? I never really realized this also is not progressing the movie forward at all. You know, we've got the two characters next door who aren't contributing to the plot. This is not moving the, the movie along at all. I never really realized how much time this movie spends really making this slumber party into like a very real thing. 
and like this relationship with these girls into a very real thing. It's like they, they work overtime to develop all the relationships between the sisters and then what's going on with these girls because there's like so little going on otherwise. Like at this point, Russ is not doing anything. We're just spending time with these girls, having these conversations and I suppose building this real world. Diane realizes that they're listening and then the lights go out. Again, the house is actually dark. After the power goes out, the girls decide they're going to go check the fuse box out in the garage. Kim picks on Diane for calling John boo-boo. And then she responds by Kimberly, your days are numbered. So another reference to someone who's about to die later on in the movie. Uh, The girls do go out to the garage to check the fuse box. They can see the two fuses. The fuses aren't blown, but there's two missing. And then we can see that there's someone in the garage with them after Kim drops her flashlight. She picks it up and sees someone standing there and she immediately whacks him in the face with that flashlight. It's only Jeff and Neil who took the fuses out, so they definitely deserve a good whack in the face. Uh, But I love that these these girls immediately resort to violence. Mm -hmm. It's like that thing that you're always asking them to do in horror movies and they never do it. And in this movie, their first reaction is to just swing whatever weapon they have in their hand and crack whoever's in front of them. And I, I think it's pretty cool that they do that as opposed to just kind of being like, who's there? What is that? Uh, over to Valerie, she hears the garbage cans again. She goes outside to check on them. She checks on that creaky swing. And then suddenly someone comes up behind her with a knife. It's only Courtney. And this is our eighth and final fake scare. Or is it our, I believe it might be our seventh, seventh and final fake scare. So then we cut back over to Trisha's. Boo Boo arrives. Diane walks up to the car and says, Hi, gorgeous. <laughs> he is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Like, is she talking to that guy or who is she talking to? <laughs> not, hey, cutie. It's not, hey, handsome. Hey, gorgeous. gorgeous. I was, I pointed out that I didn't see anyone gorgeous in the car. So I'm not sure who she was talking to. <laughs> uh, Diane tells him to pull the car into the garage and she opens it, even though we just saw Trish lock it a few minutes ago. And I was wondering if, if that's a mistake or if we're supposed to think that Russ unlocked it when he was in the garage earlier. I didn't catch that, actually. We'll say that they it was intentional and Russ was in there and, and undid it. Uh, she does close the garage, but we see that she doesn't lock it. And then we cut back to Valerie's and there, she's giving Courtney a makeover. They go kind of go back and forth about what look to give her. And then it ends with Courtney saying, make me look like you. And it's just another one of those. Like it, this movie has such an extreme focus on Valerie being pretty. Like they are about her looks in this mm-hmm. movie. That is numero uno. Back to Trish's, Diane and Boo Boo making out in his car in the garage. <laughs> Kim and Jackie are making strawberry daiquiris and trying to account for all the runs in the baseball game from the previous night. Meanwhile, Jeff and Neil are giggling like schoolgirls at nothing. They're just sitting there giggling away at them talking about the baseball game. So again, we've got a bit of a gender reversal here. The girls are talking about the baseball game and the guys are just sitting there giggling away. <laughs> which I can appreciate. Just turn these idiots into a bunch of giggling morons. Yeah. Uh, We cut back to Diane and Boo Boo, uh, and we get this extreme close-up of her boob. It is extreme. Like that fills the frame. And can you imagine being this actress and seeing that projected on a (laughs) 60-foot screen? I doubt they used a body double with that. You know, they didn't have a lot of money for this movie, so that was probably her. 
<laughs> probably was. I'm sure she's super excited about it afterward too. Yeah. Diane says that they can't have sex there and they decide they're going to go over to Boo Boo's house. And, but she's got to go inside and confront the girls first, which she does, which is a little awkward, but then she comes back out to the garage, still super dark in there. And when she gets in the car, she goes in for the kiss. And then we see Boo Boo's head pop off. Like it was spring loaded. Mm. <laughs> I loved it. Yep. Great. Right. Same. Let's get rid of that head. please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that head had to go, but I do have a question. Did he drill his head off? Couldn't you run it like across it and then go across it again? We'll see. He's able to slice later. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah. That's just like you can slice with it. So couldn't he just kind of like slice it in front and then, yeah. Hmm. Like an ice sculptor? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much in my head. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking. But how did he do it in the car? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. He would have to work at that for a while, I think. Probably longer than her being inside. Yes. Yeah. They make that weapon to kind of be the be all. It can do anything. You mm-hmm. know, if it needs to cut something, if it needs to just drill, it can do whatever. Precision work. Yes. So then Diane screams at this bloody stump left over. And then we cut back to the kitchen, though, and we see the blender is whipping up these daiquiris so they can't hear a damn thing. You know, it's worth noting that, that Amy Holden Jones, the director and producer, used to be an editor. So I think that has something to do with some of these cool kind of editing tricks that they do where they bop back into the blender there and we see that and that's covering up the screen and then we go back in and, and it's, of course, it's blending up something bloody looking. So I, I think her, her skill as an editor previously kind of helps this movie a little bit. Uh, we do cut to uh, back to Diane, who's in the car honking the horn and kind of freaking out. And then she turns on the headlights and we see Russ standing in front of the car with his trusty drill. And do you think he has a name for the drill? My question was, where did he pick up that drill? Because I don't know how common it is to have a drill bit that size, you know? So did he just pop over to the hardware store and say, give me the biggest drill bit you have and the drill. I mean, the battery power on that drill is fantastic as it's well. It's intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's lasting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's something that the telephone company keeps on hand oh, yeah, for, you know, like drilling through telephone poles. That was my thought that he got it out of the van. Yeah. From the, from the woman. Because I was like, I could see that being to like drill through telephone poles or drill... But yeah, otherwise, yeah, I have no idea where he would have gotten that. And neither way, I guess the battery power is intense, <laughs> otherworldly. But yes, back to your original question. I would say he would be the type of guy to have a name for his drill if he had it long enough. But this is only a day. So I think he needs a little more time with his drill to, to give it a name. I think he hasn't had, he hasn't bonded with it yet. So he needs to bond with it a little bit before he can give it a name. He's already fallen in love with these girls. He'll, that's he'll that's be, true. He'll be professing his love later. That's so true. He spends more time with the drill than he does the girls. <laughs> that's true. So maybe he already has a name. Maybe he doesn't need that much time. All this in-between time, in-between kills, while this all the chatter and everything's going on at the party, I get to see him in the bushes just kind of petting that thing. I was just about to say stroking his drill. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure, like, is it something simple? Like, does he call it Bill or is it something, you know, 
something like Cicero or Cornelius. <laughs> um, Diane tries to run out of the garage, but Russ corners her and she slides down the wall so we can get the most sexually loaded image in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And that's saying something for a movie with this much TNA. Uh, as the camera looks right at Diane from between Russ's legs and his drill is undeniably positioned as a phallic object and he drills her, but good. Mm-hmm. She can frame an image Amy Holden Jones, she knows how to frame something because that being as loaded as it is, you know, that's, it's a cool shot to be, to make your point. And it's, she has a pretty good handle of what she's shooting and what she's trying, the the meaning she's trying to convey in that shot. And that's pretty iconic scene from a pretty silly movie. Mm -hmm. The kill was less aggressive too, kind of. I mean, it was, he didn't like tenderly drill into her, but you know, it just, it felt less... I don't, I don't know, just a little, maybe a little bit more of a loving drill. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Tender love and care. Yes. (laughs) So then we, we go back over to Valerie and Courtney's. They're looking out the window because Courtney heard the honking and the screaming, but they decide to mind their business. Another pointless moment to cut back to them, but we need to keep them in the story. So uh, we will go back to Trish's and they're now they're calling coach Jaina who to ask them who scored the runs in the baseball game they need to know this like it's on their <laughs> college entrance exam at this point the pizza guy well we assume is the pizza guy rings the doorbell jeff goes to the door and says what's the damage and the voice that replies says six so far so russ has killed six people so far and kim's on the phone with coach Jana. Uh, meanwhile the jeff neil and trish are trying to figure out who owes what they open the door Lo and behold, the pizza guy has holes drilled right through his eyes. And now we're going to get the siege on the house. The girls are aware of what's going on. We're at the 47-minute mark now. So we are about a half hour from being done, and they're just now realizing this. So things are about to ramp up. But I do have a question here. How do you think Russ made the pizza guy stand up? That was something I, but I wrote down. I was like, how is he standing up holding a pizza? And falls in when they open the door. I, yeah, I have no idea. And also, how did he drill so perfectly into his eyes and not go all the way through? How did he how did he get the pizza guy in a position to do that? How did we get from A to C? Tell me how we got there. Was he like secretly holding him up behind him and we just like, didn't <laughs> see him because he was hiding? And then when they opened it, he like took he off like- up and then he fell through. Like I was thinking uh, that too. That's all that could be. Maybe. I was like, is he propped against the door? Does he does this guy come equipped with a kickstand? (laughs) He's like a tripod. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, maybe he's holding him up. Like he's just just off frame. He's just gotta got a hold of his jacket and then he just lets him go and disappears in the bush. Um, at this point, the the kids freak out, but they actually do the smart thing. They immediately grab the delivery guy, yank him in the door and shut that door right away. Mm-hmm. And kudos to them for immediately doing that. Coach Jana hears the screaming on the other end, but they do hang up the phone because Trish wants to call for help, which again, very smart. As she's in the middle of that, Russ cuts the phone line with the pair of wire cutters. Again, another tool I assume he got from the telephone van. Uh, and then over to Valerie's where Coach Jana is calling her to see if she'll go check in on them. And Valerie wants no part of that. Courtney, however, is dying to go over there because she wants those boys to see her in that polo shirt tucked into those shorts. (laughs) And of course, now she's all done up. She's been made over and 
she feels like she's she's looking good, feeling herself. <laughs> she wants to add to that list of beating the boys off. <laughs> she does. She does. She knows the boys over there must be ready and willing. Sorry. So back over to Trish's and they make a smart plan. Let's turn off the lights, close the curtains and lock down the house. But this is immediately followed by a dumb plan. The guys are going to split up and one run for Valerie's house. That'll be Neil. And then Jeff is going to head for Mr. Contant's house saying one of us will make it even if the other one doesn't. Well, how about all of you make it if you all stick together? Mm-hmm. The the one thing in these movies that never happens, and I understand it can't happen because then the movie, you know, the credits will roll if everybody sticks together and doesn't get killed. But it's one smart plan followed by a dumb plan. It's literally the only piece of ad- advice that Neil gives the entire movie. And Neil, again, a useless character. And I have another question here. Why aren't the girls in charge of saving everybody? We've already established that they're much more capable than the guys. That's a good question. I really have no idea. I'm surprised that the girls aren't just like, just take a seat. We'll handle this. Yeah. Kind of yeah. At this point, Trish is going to arm Jeff with the kitchen knife, which he looks terrified of. <laughs> and she says, maybe we should stick together. And he disagrees saying, this is the right thing to do. I know it. Again, just put the knife down, listen to Trish. Maybe you would have lived through this. Mm-hmm. So they get ready to go. Neil gets the only female contact he'll ever get in his life, which is a peck on the cheek. And then they head out the door. Jeff only gets as far as the garage before he's reduced to a blubbering puddle of tears by Diane's body swinging out of nowhere like Bob's in Halloween. Mm -hmm. So we get another Halloween shot. And then before he can completely wet his pants, we hear that gentle hum of the power drill as it exits through the gift shop of his chest cavity. (laughs) And down he goes. But he's not dead as we'll find out, which I'm surprised by because that looked like a pretty bad shot. We go over to Valerie's. She's watching a slasher movie on TV. Kind of like, um, again, like Halloween where they're watching the horror movie. They're watching the, uh, oh gosh, the the first real the thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like that in a way. It's her sitting there watching the horror movie on TV. Mm-hmm. Yep. So another Halloween reference there. The phone rings in in the movie she's watching, and then we the phone's ringing. Courtney's got another guy on the phone, uh, and then a character on the TV is walking around saying hello. Is anybody there? And and then as Neil reaches the front door and he's saying Valerie, anybody home? So kind of echoing bits there. How does she not hear this? He is pounding on that door, and this is another one of those things where like they're positioning her as like an old woman. She like she can't hear this. Like. <laughs> She's just missing like her knitting basket on her lap. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, even when we're with her, we can hear him out there. I mean, the only thing is she's got the TV up loud and that door closed. Maybe she couldn't hear over the sound of Courtney's vibrator. That was obviously (laughs) going on upstairs. (laughs) Highly possible. Oh, 100%. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Right by her. The bushel of bananas she keeps up in the room. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. So the movie shows a woman being slashed with a knife just as Russ makes his way. And then we get these a lot of match cuts here where Valerie pops up in the frame and then we see Russ pop up in, his, in the frame outside. Neil takes a pretty good lunge at him, but he is literally taken down single-handedly. And then Valerie peeks through the through the door, like the window in the door, but can't see them because they're kind of wrestling right outside of frame. And then Valerie goes back to her movie. 
And again, it matches up. Someone's getting stabbed in the movie. And then Russ turns Neil into a block of Swiss cheese. And Neil is gone. Neil. <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah. So then it, it, right after this, we cut up to Courtney in her room having this conversation about French kissing <laughs> and how gross it is and all this stuff. Should this follow this character's debt? Like we are now in the final bit of this movie where like the characters know something's going on, not Valerie and Courtney, but everybody else knows what's going on. And we're still bouncing back up to Courtney's room for her conversations about another kind of sexual thing. Like it does this play back into this parody idea that they had of slashers where like, even in the face of all this death, there's still this kind of sexual element. They still have to be talking about sex. It has to. I mean, it doesn't make sense otherwise. If there were ever was a genre to like stage a full-fledged critique of like gender and sexuality, it's horror, right? Yeah. Like they they wear those topics like right on their sleeve and like all the, the tropes are there. And this young character is just as horny as the two-legged hard-ons that have been walking through this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, And sh- they can't get enough of her interest in boys, even in right after a character, get two characters get killed. And another thing too... <laughs> <laughs> she thought French kissing was gross, but she she was fine with the the beating earlier. Like she yeah. really just like skipped right over some things there, right? <laughs> thinking the same thing. I was like, I would guess that a girl who was beating boys off in the fifth grade would not think French kissing was gross. Pretty yes. sure she would just go right for it. Exactly. Yeah, and probably was doing that in the fifth grade. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> French kissing. As opposed to beating off. It's a little more personal. Very true. Very true. (laughs) Yeah. Very true. So we cut back over to uh, to Trish's and Russ is collecting Neil's worthless body. Stuffs it into the back of Boo Boo's trunk with the rest of his trophies, like a can of sardines in there. (laughs) I I like that all the actors are really sitting there with like, they're all looking in different directions. (laughs) Uh, And I like that we see Boo Boo's head stuffed in the corner. (laughs) You can just see like the stump of his head sitting in the corner. He's my favorite, but we can't see his face. Um, I was going to say, I was going to say, thank God, but that's that's mean. (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) I'll write him a a letter and just tell him how sorry I am for making fun of him. (laughs) I think he gets it. He's got to get it right. So then we get Russ kind of humorously counting the bodies and he realizes that one's gone (laughs) and we see Jeff inching his way back to the house. Meanwhile, uh, Kim, Trish and Jackie are doing the smart thing. They are huddled together, each with a weapon in their hand. However, Jackie gets hungry (laughs) and decides she's going to check on the pizza. (laughs) Do you guys have any notes, maybe specifically on what Jackie's wearing? The only thing that I said to my husband was, I was like, wow, she's got a great bod. <laughs> I was like, I would like Jackie. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a very beautiful wedding night outfit, but um, right? not something you'd put on with a bunch of your high school friends, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. I was like, that is a woman right there. That yes, is not a yes. high schooler. And no. she is wearing like a negligee. Like she is wearing perfect. That's a perfect example of the the wedding night yep. attire. Yes, that is perfect. Because mm-hmm. you could totally see that. But I was like, this is not something you wear at your friend's sleepover in high school. 
And did you have lingerie when you were in high school? Because like, no, no, no like, at why? least not none that looked like that. No. So I'm like, <laughs> why would, would they just have that in the early eighties? I don't know. Maybe people were wearing that on the regular. Yeah. I was like, is that normal for a teenage girl to have that and be wearing that in the eighties? I have no idea. Maybe the late seventies, early eighties, maybe that was a thing. But I mean, you also have Kim wearing the like elongated Jersey right. thing. So, you know, that's still a little weird, but maybe mm-hmm. a little more normal. I don't know. So if you're 18 and built like that, maybe. that's true. I probably that's true. Have, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's true. Maybe yeah. if I look like Jackie, I would have had some lingerie. <laughs> I look like I was 12 when I was 18. So <laughs> I was kind of a string bean. So, yeah. So. Jackie decides that she's going to check on that pizza and this is disgusting to the other two girls, but she says she feels really bad when she's hungry. And right now she feels really bad and goes right over to that pizza guy, checks the pizza, takes a bite and immediately is feeling good. I can't blame her. Life goes on. Yeah. Life does go on. (laughs) Yeah. She's so nonchalant about it. It's great. Then they start to hear Jeff's whimpers at the back door and they head that way. And then for, our second movie in a row, we get the, the Scooby-Doo shot of the, the three girls' heads popping around the corner. Uh, they decide not to open the door. Russ basically renders Jeff a pile of tears and finishes him off. We get a quick shot that we can see Coach Jenna is uh, on her way to Trisha's. And then we go back over to Valerie, who's trying to find Courtney. because There's another boy on the phone, but she can't find her. And she sees that Courtney is on her way over to Trisha's house. And Val's like, shit, got to go after her. So she heads out to back over to Trisha's. And Courtney is about to knock when then she sees Valerie come in. And then Val knocks on the door, but there's no answer. She walks around. And then Jackie, Kim, and Trish are upstairs in Trisha's room when they hear Valerie knocking. And then Jackie decides she's going to run down and open the door. And she gets a slash to the throat with that drill essentially turning her into a Pez dispenser of negligees. Yes. <laughs> She's spewing out lingerie <laughs> <from her> neck. <laughs> oh shit. Yep. So she's done, but now Russ is in the house. We get a super crazy face as he steps his way into the house. Uh, Kim and Trish head right up to the, to her room and barricade themselves uh, behind the door. And then meanwhile, Valerie goes around the back to check and sees Jeff's blood on the ground, but is not alarmed by this. And how big is this house that they don't hear the commotion of Jackie getting killed? Yeah, because there wasn't some loud noise going at that point that would have distracted them, right? So No. Again, she just can't hear. She's an old woman. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So Val goes around back, or I should say Courtney pops out, and then Val tells her to stay there while she goes around the front. And this third act has so many moving parts and I'm exhausted just recapping it. There's just so much, (laughs) this person goes there, that person goes there, but they all change positions so freaking much. Valerie finds the front door is unlocked, walks in for a look, doesn't find anyone. Trish and Kim are keeping quiet and they start to wonder if Valerie is working with or is friends with the killer. Then we see Trish and Kim are back up in the Pink Palace discussing this whether or not she's acting with the killer, which leads to my favorite line in the movie, kind of an extreme reaction to not being invited to the party, wouldn't you say? <laughs> it's great. So, but in the back of the frame, we see Russ quietly creeping in the window 
Again, some pretty great framing. And before they know it, he's standing right behind them. They scream. Kim drops the knife. And then they start throwing shit at Russ before Trish blasts him in the head with the baseball bat, knocking him out. Again, the women know how to take care of business. But somehow in the face of danger, these two relatively intelligent girls start acting pretty dumb. Trish drops the bat. Kim has already lost her knife. Uh, And then they struggle to move that dresser away. And then Russ wakes up seemingly with that knife already in his hand. Like he just like he's respawned in a video game and just (laughs) has his weapon already in his hand. And unfortunately, Kim gets stabbed to the stomach. And again, I think the great strength of the movie is that these are semi likable characters. Like you don't want to see Kim die here, right? Right. Yeah, no. Yeah. Trish gets the, does get the door open and she runs out and then Russ looks around. Uh, he wanders into the bathroom and has this moment looking in the mirror like narcissist <laughs> falling in love with his own reflection. <laughs> I laughed at that. I, I chuckled at that. Was that the bathroom with the carpeting on the floor? I don't know if you caught that earlier yeah. in the film. No, I didn't. The old carpeted bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so he gives himself a good look, a good, a good once over. Uh, likes what he sees and then begins looking around again. <laughs> Valerie is looking b- around back for Courtney and then she finds her laying in the dirt as a prank. I suppose this is supposed to be a false scare as if maybe she's been killed, but it it just doesn't play like that at all. They decide that nothing's going on and they're just going to lock up the house and bail. Uh, Russ is checking through the the bedroom closet. And as he leaves, we, see, we can see Trish uh, hiding behind the dry cleaning bag, a la Black Christmas 74. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On their way out, Courtney wants to raid the fridge. And then we get another cool sight gag uh, as Kim is stuffed in the fridge like last night's leftovers. <laughs> I I am always wondering, like every time we watch this movie, how he gets Kim in the fridge. Because it seems like he goes from the upstairs room. It, that's all upstairs because he comes downstairs to Valerie and Courtney. So he's still upstairs after leaving after Trish getting out of the bedroom. So did he carry Kim downstairs, put her in the the fridge and then go back upstairs to look for Trish? It seems unlikely. I feel like he went to go look for Trish right after she escaped because that would make it the easiest to go find her. So I always think it's weird. Like, I think it's a very funny gag and I like that she's in the fridge, but I'm always like, how did, why, why did he put her in the fridge and how did he get her in the fridge and then go back upstairs and how much time has lapsed since this? Cause I feel like it's not supposed to be very long. And she would, did she walk herself there? Did she get stabbed and walk herself into the fridge? Self-preservation one oh one right there. Get in yep. the fridge. Yep. Not to mention that's a side-by-side refrigerator and he would have had to taken out some of those shelves to get her right. in there, right? <laughs> yes. So I'm like, where, so where are those shelves? <laughs> So true. Takes some time to get her in there. Unless they've got like a meat freezer. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But I don't know. That would be a weird shit. Maybe they're murderers in that house anyways, if they got one of those. <laughs> but I, I like that Russ has a sense of humor about how he stages the bodies. Just shoves one in the fridge. So when somebody opens, they can find that. So that's fun. He's a little, maybe a little more humorous than Michael Myers is <laughs> setting his bodies up. Uh, of course, comedy does come in three. So it happens once, they don't see. It happens the second time, they don't see. And then the third time, Courtney opens that door. Kim spills out, and then they flip. And we are now an hour and six minutes into an hour and 16-minute movie. 
<laughs> and now Valerie and Courtney are part of the action. Here we go. They both run. Uh, Valerie sees, Court, uh, sees Russ's shadow on the stairs, and she heads into a room we have not seen at all, which is the basement armory with <laughs> all manner of hardware and what and tools. Uh, Russ starts stalking around the living room. We can see that Courtney has hidden under the couch there. Uh, and then Russ drags the pizza guy's dead body and dumps it down the stairs into the basement. So we get another look at that pretty cool effect of his eyes drilled out. Um, he goes back into the living room and covers himself up with the blanket, kind of playing a little bit of possum in front of the fire, right in front of Courtney. And I just love that smile on his face as he lays down. And he's like, I'm going to get them good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like having fun with it. <laughs> he is having fun. It, it's started with him putting Kim in the fridge and he's just like, all right, this is getting fun now. Like, I think I'm going to be able to pull this whole thing off. So let's, let's see what I can do. Mm -hmm. Also, I think he's, he wants to be part of the slumber party. So he covers himself up <laughs> he must be wiped too. He's been dragging bodies all over the place and getting in fights and getting smacked with a baseball bat. Like he's got to be wiped. He already looked anemic. He's going to need a blood transfusion. <laughs> <Exactly. now. laughs> Coach Jana shows up. Um, sees no one is there, but the, my question is, how is there no blood on the floor from the pizza guy? He had his head turned into a bowling ball and there's no blood anywhere. Well, how is there no blood from Jackie yep, getting her throat too. slit? Yeah, no blood. Only the, the boys bleed because Neil is covered in blood when he drags him away and Jeff leaves a puddle of blood. So it, it's just when they need it to be to be there as a sign that something horrible has happened. Otherwise, it, he's he's a hell of a cleaner. <laughs> so Coach Jana sees the blanket on the floor and immediately lifts it up to see Russ is there. And then they got a little back and forth. He fires up the drill and she grabs the fire poker. Uh, meanwhile, Valerie is taking her time trying to find the perfect weapon down in the armory, starting with a tiny drill bit and then a hammer then some scissors and then a circular saw. <laughs> where do you think she's going with that cord <laughs> where was she going with the cord not the brightest move no. it's like how long do you think that cord is where are you going and it's so evidently plugged in yeah <laughs> like what if she did make it out of the basement and made it like right to him and then she had to wait for him to get closer just so she could get him with the saw could you imagine just sitting there like no come closer Come, come just a little closer if she had just made it out. But I do like the gag of her being pulled back. I laugh at that. Definitely. Yeah. She gets her wily e. coyote moment. Mm -hmm. She, you know, hits that, that final spot and just gets yanked back down the stairs. So she can basically be situated right next to that poor delivery guy with his head drilled out. So yeah, coach Jana are circling or so coach Jana and Russ are circling each other. Like they're in a fencing match <laughs> in the living room until Courtney reaches out. And trips Russ, giving Coach Jana just a moment to give him a good crack with that fire poker. And then Trish comes running out like she's the other half of a wrestling tag team and <laughs> plunges that knife into him. I wish we could see where she gets him. Yeah. But we hear him cry out in pain. So we know he's not like super psycho and just taking that. You know, he's not like Michael Myers who just gets shot or hit and doesn't react to it at all. He feels pain. So we know he's not like super nuts, but sadly we get coach Jana. I should say she gets coach Jana's attention just long enough for Russ to 
swing that drill right across their stomach and have her poor guts start to spill out as she hits the floor. And people talk about justice for Kirby and Scream 4, justice for Coach Jana. She <laughs> yeah. didn't need to go. She didn't. This was, she's such a great character. Yep. My question is, though, why didn't she, if she was so concerned about what was going on over there, why didn't she call the police before going over yeah. there? You know, like, was she just like, oh, they're just joking, but I'm going to, I'm just going to check it out. I mean, was she not really that concerned? I mean, yeah, she but if she wasn't that concerned, why'd she go? Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. Why didn't she call the police? The fact that she drives over there and it it's a while that she's driving over there because she mm-hmm. she heads a, quite a ways, I would say, it takes for her to get there. So, yeah, she is concerned enough to be just going over there by herself. No weapons, nothing, not that concerned, despite hearing them scream like bloody murder basically over the phone. So, yeah, yeah, it's weird that she is not taking more precaution before going over there. So we cut back to Valerie, who is still in the armory, and she finally settles on the machete which I have to imagine is the Friday the 13th inspired, right? Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Russ does come to his feet while Trish is seeing to coach Jana and he is brandishing that drill and telling her how pretty she is and professes his love to her. I didn't understand that. I mean, that's, I know he spoke when he was portraying the pizza guy behind the door, but you don't necessarily realize that's him. And, but that's like the first time he really said anything. And I'm like, why, why are those the words he chose? Is that just supposed to show his level of quote unquote crazy or what? Yeah. It's like they saved it for here. Yeah. The only other thing he does is he counts the bodies. He just whispers oh, yeah. one, mm-hmm. two, but like, that's just nothing, you know, it's barely anything, but yeah, all of a sudden he's like, has to bear his soul to this girl and tell her how pretty she is and how much love it takes for him to do what he's doing. So obviously he's crazy, but it, it, it's a weird speech for them to give him at this point of the movie, for sure. I have to point out that he finishes his finishes his little bit with, you know, you want it. And then the, you love it. His, the way he says these words are super creepy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's again to his performance because he, he doesn't say it like in a, just a matter of fact way. Like he, you almost believe that he believes what he's saying. Now, is that how a peacock would say it then? Is that why he did that? <laughs> when they do that, when they flash their plumage, that's what they're saying. Like, you know, you want it. You love it. <laughs> <laughs> so then finally, Valerie emerges from the armory armed with the only pointy thing in the house, more substantially phallic than the drill he's holding. And she takes that happy go more running start and swing at him. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, she misses, but he he gets scared and he runs out the back door and she gives chase like the the women in this movie came to play ball damn it like yep. she's been involved in this fiasco for six minutes and she's like i'm killing this motherfucker it was almost like she was skipping on the way to kill him though. i don't know if you noticed <laughs> that little like yes. jaunt she did 100 <laughs> percent. yep she is she's pretty pumped to be uh to be taking this dude out uh so she <laughs> she chases him out there gets him backed up against the pool and takes a hearty swing with that machete and whacks that boner right in half. Yep. And he looks so disappointed. <laughs> Castrated. But she's not done yet. She takes three good whacks and rips his hand right off with that machete. And now he's a little upset. 
Just a little bit. Now he's more than disappointed. Now he's a little upset. But she's still not done. She takes another swipe with that machete and gives Russ a matching gash to match Coach Jana, and he falls into the pool. But Courtney rushes out to give her a hug, and Russ isn't done yet. He pops out of the water and rushes them, pinning Valerie to the ground while Courtney tries to wrestle him off of her. But he slaps Valerie with that bloody stump, and that just grosses me out. <laughs> it's gross. It is, right? It's yeah. gross, yeah. Uh, and the like this uh, the sound effect and yeah to her having the blood on her face after it's gross trish rushes out with the knife trying to repeat her successful lunge from earlier but he he deflects that berserker attack and then but that gives valerie just enough time to grab the machete and then russ takes like a flying leap at her like i feel like he's <laughs> not too far from her but he is launching his body through the air and lands right on that machete blade and he dies on top of Valerie with that blade penetrating him mm-hmm. in a movie filled with penetrative moments. Yeah, and she was kind of holding it down at her waist at that yeah. level, too. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. Yeah, very suggestive mm-hmm. kind of positioning there. Valerie and Trish are understandably sobbing, and Courtney looks like a changed young woman. Wow, that's saying a lot yeah, if she wasn't a woman before, she has yep. entered womanhood. <laughs> yep. uh, and then the final seconds, we hear a police siren. There are police in this town. Yeah, who called them? Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty much. Maybe Coach Jana called them and they're just now getting there? Maybe. You know what I just thought? Maybe maybe Kim's not dead. Maybe she was hiding in the fridge. She only got a, a knife in the stomach. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So maybe she actually hid in the fridge and then after everybody left, she's called the cops and there she's you go. just got the knife in her gut. There it is. That's the sequel. That's the one that you're talking about. <laughs> that's how it, yep. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it happened. That's it. <laughs> yep. There so that's go. the end of the movie. I just have one final question here. Who is the protagonist of this movie? And does it have one? I had said that I thought, it's hard to say Valerie since she was kind of like a supplemental side character, but because she killed him, I thought, well, it, it's her. But then I'm like, is it Trish? Is it the girls at the slumber party? Who is it really? It's all of them. <laughs> that was kind of my initial thought too. I was like, all right, I guess it's Valerie since she kind of saves the day. And, you know, we spend about as much time with Valerie as we do with the girls at the slumber party. So it's like, so we're spending about the same amount of time with Valerie. So it could be Valerie, but then I'm like, but is it, is it Valerie? I don't know. So, I mean, do we have to have one? Could it just be all of them? I mean, it can be. Yeah. Just a group yeah. of girls. You think it's potentially Valerie because we spend so much time with her without having any action upon her. So you're thinking, well, she must be the lead because we keep seeing her. And then, like you said, she's the one who, kind of saves the day at the end well valerie and courtney but the other girls spend the whole movie i should say the last half an hour being acted upon but valerie and courtney are just there like they're just waiting for them to have their moment so you're like well these two girls or at least valerie must be the lead but it's such an uninteresting part of the movie what's going on with them it's just really like time filler in between these scenes with the girls so you say 
well, it feels like the girls at the party are really the leads here. But I think Ainsley, you're right when it's, or both of you are right saying that it really isn't one. It's kind of that everybody is the lead here and they're all kind of acting against this character towards the end. And it's like a, the whole, like the whole women's club, just kind of leading this movie forward in different ways. I mean, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Did you guys have any interesting topics or anything you guys wanted to bring up here? Like I said, I was just really surprised to see that there were other films that they, yeah, they call it the Massacre franchise and it's Slumber Party Massacre, the Sorority House Massacre, Cheerleader Massacre. And I think Cheerleader Massacre might have been the one that has Linda from the first one in it. Maybe. Yeah, but I had no idea. Like in that that particular article there didn't even mention the second movie. And I'm like, well, that that is included in my opinion. But yeah, I've seen Sorority House Massacre. Didn't even know it was even related. No. Yeah, I was seeing that one too. And yeah. yeah, I would I would never have guessed that that was supposed to be taking place in the same world. No. Interesting. <laughs> is that the is I'm trying to even think what that one is. Is that where the the girl has like the mind link with the the escape killer is that that one i think so i get that one and another the house on sorority, sorority row yes i get the two of them confused yeah because the one is where the girls pull the prank on the house mm-hmm. mom who's like a yes. super bitch trying to get them out yeah I, I get the two of them confused as mm-hmm. well same thing <laughs> so yeah it's shit they're, they're all in the same universe they might as well all be in the same universe yeah. back anything for you that's a topic of conversation You know, I was trying to think about his last speech, and I'm sure there's some feminist angle in there, um, Mm. you know, and some topic on women's sexuality and men's role in that. But a guy holding a phallic drill and telling someone, you know, you you want it. You love it. it. You want it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see. I don't see how that's loaded in any way, shape. No, no way. I I think you're reaching. I think you're reaching. I know. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there's. An essay out there somewhere that explains oh, yeah. that very well. <laughs> you know me. I'm like always researching stuff. But I, did, <laughs> I, I did read that they said that was, of course, sort of like similar to maybe what someone would say to someone in a sexual assault encounters. And that's why they did that. That's what I was figuring. Because he's going to penetrate her without her permission. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Basically convincing himself that she wants it. That she wants it. Yep. Trying to convince yep. her that she wants it. I do have to ask, what are those drill bits used for that size? <laughs> like, well, because my husband has a lot of tools and he specifically uh, one day came home with a drill bit that size. And he said, oh, I thought you could use it to take a photo like for sorority, uh, the slumber party massacre before he knew we were doing this. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, and then I'll just return it. He's like, I don't have any use for it. Well, come to find out he was down in the garage, like putting up shelves and stuff with it. And I'm like, who... What what are these huge yeah. drill bits for other than to like drill through a peephole, I guess? I was just going to say that for peepholes. <laughs> yeah. Like, who's using those? Yeah, I have no idea. I didn't know yeah. it was even real. I thought it was a joke. Like I saw this movie, funnily enough, at a slumber party, and I thought it was just like a joke that it was that size. I didn't know yeah. this existed. Yeah. It seems irrationally large, even for a telephone you yeah. know, worker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't think they would even use it for peepholes because, my God, 
if you if you watch when that happens, it's it almost splinters the door. Yeah, yeah. That drill. So yeah. like it can't be for that, and it and it being uh, cordless seems very strange as well. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine that, but yeah, I mean, aside from having to drill, like, it seems like it would be for drilling like precision holes. Like it looks like it would have a rounded bit, you know what I mean? So it would make yeah. like a precise like circle, which is not, not what happens to that door. You know, it's not precise at all. <laughs> the, the door splinters, you know, like you wouldn't believe, but yeah, other than that, I really, I don't know. I'm not uh Mr. Handyman. So I don't really know. I think the reason why Danny used it was because he had to get at a certain angle where he couldn't get his hand and the regular drill there. So that length of that drill yep. bit helped get up under in a spot where he needed it. So I, I guess yep. that's what they're for. I don't know. Yeah. I Googled cordless power drills just to mm-hmm. see if like I could find like a model that had that kind of bit on it. And yeah. every one that you find is just your regular power drill. Right. You know, I've got two of those in the house, but I don't have any one with a drill bit that's two feet long. Yeah. You know, that's you should. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> shit. Now I do. <laughs> I mean, we've got one now and we're it's we're never going back. So <laughs> yeah. Well who the hell would use the tiny bit when you got <laughs> massive bit. Do you guys like this movie? I do like it. The first time we watched it, I liked it. I liked it the more I've watched it. So the the first time I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. Second time I watched it, I was like, yeah, I actually like this movie. So I think it's better on rewatches, but it, so I do, I do like this movie. I like it too. I've only seen it twice. First time I saw it, uh, I mentioned earlier to you guys that I saw it at a slumber party and it was after I was out of college. And even then I don't, I didn't know anything about it. And I don't think I picked up on any of the Valak references or or any of that kind of stuff. But I mean, I liked it. And then watching it this time, I was like, oh, yeah, I I do really like this movie. Yeah, same. I don't think I picked up on it. I mean, I saw it later in life. I think Mm -hmm. I probably watched it somewhere in my 30s the Mm -hmm. first time. So the end where she cuts the the blade, you know, cuts his drill. I mean, it's obviously the loaded imagery there. That, That was one thing. But, you know, not all of it didn't click for sure. But I I know I liked it. Uh, now, you know, watching it and kind of realizing that like, I do like it, but now that we've looked at it like this, you realize how, how little actually goes on in the movie in between some of these kills. I kind of lump it now into those movies that are like, kind of like chill movies, like chill horror movies where people are just sitting around kind of chilling. And then mm-hmm. like, there's a killer somewhere, but it's not like this ramped up, like super actiony kind of vibe to it. It's like, oh, they're just chilling. And then things happen and then it just progresses like that so it's kind of like i hold it up with like the first friday the 13th where like nothing happens in that movie they're just kind of hanging around they're getting the cabin ready they're smoking weed they're playing monopoly and then eventually things come to a head and towards the end of the movie and then you've got like the the horror movie takes place then this movie kind of falls i think into that same category where it's just kind of like it's cool to just put on it's a chill movie you know people are just cracking jokes and it's a slumber party and you know all this kind of which if they were going for that, then they pulled it off. Like it was it's done pretty well. But again, it's an hour and 16 minutes and like so little of it is actually necessary to the movie. But I like it because it is one of those kind of chill movies that's it's kind of fun to put on, pick at. A good background movie too, I guess, if you just needed to put something on. So, yep. Yep. All right. So we're in agreement. So for all of you that thought we were bagging on this movie out of sheer <laughs> hatred, no. I felt so bad at the end of the Scream 3 one because of how much we tore that thing to bits without being like, it's not that bad. Like we, we definitely like (laughs) backed it up with being like, 
it's not as bad as, you know, as some, but I was just like this shitty movie. Like I think I said that like three <laughs> times in the thing. And I'm like, all right, I need, I probably needed to, to shift down a little bit from like how much, I, but as we kept talking, it just, I was just like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that when you're analyzing a movie, you kind of, you yeah. look at it from a different way. And so you kind of do that, I think, yeah. but yeah, for sure. Yeah. But then, but then we wind up at the end, it's like, you know, cooler heads prevail. And we're like, what, you know, it's not that bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap up this conversation on 1982 Slumber Party Massacre. We hope you've enjoyed our show. New episodes of the One Dark Fright podcast will be available monthly, so please don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, let's see, Google Podcasts, really wherever you fulfill your podcast needs. On behalf of Ainsley Pompey, Rebecca Kittner, and myself, Tim Waverla, we thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next month. Thank you.